Um, hello and good evening to all of you. Uh, my name is Eric Neumann. I'm the head of the Geography and Environment Department, and it's a pleasure to be chairing the event tonight. Uh, it's a great honor to have uh, Jonathan Porritt here tonight as a, our guest speaker. Uh, Jonathan is probably one of the best known environmentalists in the UK. Uh, he has such a long list of distinguished positions that he held uh, in his CV that I'll keep that to a very short, <laughs> otherwise uh, there won't be time for the talk anymore. He's been, amongst other things, a co-founder of Forum for the Future, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sustainable development charities there are many of them, but, yeah. in the UK. Well, it's still the biggest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a former director of Friends of the Earth, co-chair of the Green Party, and uh, very importantly as well, you chaired the UK Sustainable Development Commission for, I believe, nine years. Yeah. A very long time. Um, very long maybe time. you can tell us later on what came much out of that. <laughs> uh, he also received a CBA for services to environmental protection in 2000. Uh, he's clearly a very distinguished environmentalist. We are very glad and very grateful uh, for him to come here and give a talk. He will talk for about 35, 40 minutes, leaving us plenty of time for question and answer, which is often the most interesting part. Jonathan, please go Thank ahead. You. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you very much. Good, well, welcome, um, everybody. Delighted to be here um, and to take part in this uh, lecture series um, and to share with you this evening a bit of my own kind of current consternation and doubt about what's going on surrounding the politics of climate change and sustainable development and so on, because we are in an absolutely weird period of time in terms of the climate debate. I can't really remember anything quite as bizarre as what we've got now, um, certainly not for a very, very long time. And that's because even as the science keeps on deepening and actually getting stronger, I know you may not believe that given the furore in the media about all the different things that have been happening with the IPCC, but the science is actually getting firmer uh, month by month. We've still got now an extraordinary situation where very large numbers of people remain totally unpersuaded by the science and indeed are beginning to doubt that there's anything called man-made climate change at all. Poor old Ed Miliband sitting there in the middle of this furor, not really quite knowing what to do with it, confronting the extremely uncomfortable reality that fewer people at the end of 2009 subscribed to the basic science on climate change than at the end of 2008. And that's after the most expensive information campaign this government has ever had act on CO2. More millions spent on that than on anything else. So what's going on? So I'm going to try and explore this a bit. I don't have answers to this, by the way, so I'm sorry, anyone who's coming here for the gospel, as it were, don't, you can leave now, um, because I don't really know what's happening right now. I'm finding it very mystifying. So is it this sort of thing that is causing some of the anger, some of the uncertainty about what's happening in this area? This is a front page uh, from the Independent back in November last year. As you know, the Independent and the Guardian have both been taking increasingly robust campaigning stances on many of these issues. And quite often, one encounters a, a front page of this kind with the Independent. The evidence tells us 
that when people see headlines of this kind, one of two things happens instantly. Firstly, they just go, oh yeah, who says? Because reveal scientists is these days not an automatic route to credibility. It's a bit worrying, actually, when you think about it. So reveal scientists, yeah, who's scientists? Or rather, who's paying those scientists? And the second thing that happens, and this is very well documented in the literature of behavior change and responses to climate change, is a sense that, well, that sounds really bad, in fact, so bad, that I'm not really sure there's anything I can do about it. So I might as well get on and have a really good life while I can, because after all, there's nothing that I can do. And of course, the government has been basing a lot of its information campaigns around this kind of message. I don't know how many of you have actually clocked personally the Act on CO2 TV and cinema advert, where you have dad reading to daughter bedtime story, looking at this animated book in front of them. And in the animation is this sort of unfolding story of climate-induced apocalypse, basically as everything starts to go wrong and deserts form and then you get the floods and, and then you see her little teddy sinking beneath the waves. I hope some of you have seen it because it's a real object lesson in how not to do communications around climate change. So the teddy sinks beneath the waves, a little tear trickling down its eye. Teddies and tears shouldn't really go hand in hand, but anyway. And she turns to Dad and... She asks him rather plaintively, does this story have a happy ending, Dad? Perfectly reasonable question, given that Teddy has just sunk beneath the waves and your house is about to go next. And, of course, at that point, the advert cuts away to a wonderful government information message. That depends on us. So your Teddy's fate is in the hands of God knows who. And for me, when I look at that ad, and every time I see it now, I kind of want to get up and, and literally kick in the screen because it's so irritating to me. I know that as many people will be watching that and turning away disempowered or angry rather than empowered and committed. So, have we brought some of this on ourselves? Have we failed to connect people into the appropriate set of upbeat ideas about addressing climate change? Have we just left them with all the apocalyptic misery and nothing else to go on? Question mark. And I've been in the apocalypse business, as it were, for quite a long time, most of my life, in fact, um, and probably will be for quite a while to come. However, you can't blame scientists for being in somewhat apocalyptic mode. These are the seven canaries in the mine, as Jim Hansen calls them, America's most eminent climatologist, yeah, extraordinary man, uh, very eloquent, very passionate, uh, now more of a campaigner, some would say, than a scientist, even though he was the first scientist in America ever to give evidence to Congress in 1987, so that takes us back a bit. But he says any one of these big ecosystems, any one of these uh, huge unfolding stories about climate change could tip us into what has become known as runaway climate change. If we see such an accelerated melt in the Arctic, of the Arctic sea ice, then that totally changes the albedo effect, that changes the amount of sunshine reflected back into space or absorbed by the sea, etc., etc. And each of these has a complicated set of immensely important feedback loops wrapped up in them. 
And that's what scientists increasingly are so nervous about, is that we don't really understand these feedback loops. And we don't understand how quickly they're going to feed back into the system in such a way that the threat from climate change becomes very grave indeed. So just to take you through a little bit of the linguistics of this, in 1992, when the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was first signed up to by um, all, m almost every country then, uh, including the United States, let us not forget, the Framework Convention is based on nations doing what they have to do to avoid what is referred to in the Convention as dangerous climate change. That was the phrase used in 1992. It's still used by a lot of scientists. By the end of that decade, by around 2000, scientists have begun to worry not so much about how you would define danger, but the point at which some of these changes in the system didn't get worse gradually in a nice, straight, predictable line, but got worse very fast and very unpredictably, because the climate record tells us that the climate doesn't really behave in the way that we'd like it to. It does all sorts of unanticipated things in incredibly short periods of time. So at that point, scientists started to worry about non-linearity. By the time we got to the middle of that decade, so 2005, scientists had shifted the language towards this concept of runaway, by which they meant if we put enough of this anthropogenic effect, this man-made effect, into the atmosphere, then we could trigger these natural feedback loops, at which point the whole thing might just run away with itself. Because you put such a huge contribution into the warming process at that point that it just goes, whatever we do. And Jim Lovelock, of course, is the great um, exponent of the runaway effect, so much so that he basically argues it's too late anyway and it doesn't really matter what we do. And then we got to 2007, the document that is now causing such controversy, as you know, in the science community, because there have been so many doubts about some of the, a tiny number, by the way, three small parts of the science of the IPCC, but nonetheless, considerable doubt about it. In chapter four of the fourth assessment report, you will find this reference to avoiding irreversible climate change. So between 1992 and 2007, we moved from dangerous, which sounds sort of manageable, because you know, some people seek out danger deliberately, so we're all used to that, to irreversible, which sounds, from a species point of view, really very scary indeed. 2002, sorry, 1992, 2007. A massive shift in the way scientists were trying to aggregate up the risk to humankind posed by accelerating climate change. And the irony, of course, is that as the scientific rhetoric, as the language that scientists use to try and explain the risks has moved in that direction, you can see what that direction looks like, of course, the dissenting voices, those who are sometimes called denialists or contrarians, you have to be careful about the language here, have basically moved in exactly the other direction and have sought to persuade people via august media outlets, such as the Daily Mail, the Daily Express and Fox News, favoured denialist media outlet in the universe, have sought to persuade people that actually none of this really stacks up. And not only doesn't it really stack up, it may all be a hoax. 
hoax organized by around 5,000 scientists who have conspired amongst themselves to create this false consensus to provide them with funding streams until their death. That's the nature of the hoax, okay? Climate scientists all combining together to persuade the world that this is happening even when it isn't. It's quite something to have a conspiracy theory like that. But then we are talking about America in that regard. So, even as the scientists try and up the ratchet, anti, up the anti on the panic button side of things, public opinion seems to be moving in the other direction. This is proving very problematic. It's proving problematic because, in all honesty, getting on and doing what we need to do about climate change and fixing the economics around this, which I'm going to come on to now, is actually not that difficult. I know that'll sound absurd after 20 years of politicians not working out what to do about climate change, but really and truly, this is not that difficult. And in fact, if we just focused on these four things, we could make a massive difference to this problem in a remarkably short period of time, 20, 30 years max, to do what we need to do. I'm going to touch on the first two of these. I'm not going to talk about carbon capture and storage. Please do ask me about it if you want to. Very controversial. I can't say I'm happy putting carbon capture and storage on a slide like this because actually it's exactly the kind of old world technology that we really ought to be able to dispense with entirely. The trouble is we've put so much CO2 into the atmosphere that we're now facing a very likely probability that we're going to have to spend quite a bit of resource, financial and technological resource, taking some of that CO2 back out of the atmosphere. And what that means is that every single power station that we have in a short period of time is going to have to be fitted with some mechanism to stop the CO2 getting up there in the first place. And I'm not really going to talk about forests today, although this is the biggest, most important, one-off thing that we could do. 18, 19% of total emissions today from continuing deforestation. Stop the deforestation. You've cracked a fifth of the problem. That sounds wonderfully easy. It's actually quite difficult, but you could do it. So let me talk about the first two, because this is where I think maybe we've been getting both the economics and the messaging, the communications, wrong. This uh, guy, Steve Chu, Nobel Prize winner, very eminent physicist, energy secretary in the United States, um, amazing man. And the reason I put his mug up here in front of you setting anyway, you know, you get a certain transferred authority, don't you, when you're surrounded by bald eagles and stars and stripes and everything. The reason why I put him up here is I have never heard any other person in the world in the last 35 years give as impassioned a speech about energy efficiency as this man. He came over to the UK, gave a talk, to a scientific gathering of Nobel Prize winners, and he spoke for half an hour on energy efficiency. He didn't speak about anything else. He didn't speak about renewables. He didn't speak about nuclear. He didn't speak about clean coal. He didn't speak about anything else. He just said, look, you're all going to be getting very excited about all these things, about renewables, and there were even a few nuclear enthusiasts in there. You'll be getting very excited about that. I just want to remind you that your enthusiasm is worth zilch. And that's what he did. Zilch, Americans say it so much more passionately than we do, unless you deal with energy efficiency 
first. Because if you don't do the efficiency bit, it doesn't matter what you do about decarbonizing your supply options. It'll make no difference. Well, it'll make a difference, but only on the margins. So he said, sorry, this may disappoint you, because I'm going to talk about something that you probably think is very boring, which is energy efficiency. How do we make our homes, our offices, our retail centers, our appliances, our transport systems? How do we make all of these things work really, really hard in terms of improved efficiency? And he went on to talk about what he talks about as the low-hanging fruit in America, which is that you could probably reduce total energy consumption in America by somewhere between 30 and 40% with no diminution in the materialistic lifestyle of Americans. They're so inefficient that you could do 30 to 40% without them hardly noticing, which would probably help. So this guy gave the best speech I've ever heard on energy efficiency. And I've listened to more politicians in the UK prattle on about energy issues for the last 35 years than you care to know. And not one of them has ever showed any sense of excitement or passion about energy efficiency. Too boring, too sort of down the pecking order, the food chain of things that really get politicians excited. Oh, God, it's all that stuff about kilowatt hours, and thermal insulation, air tightness. You know, politicians don't really do air tightness. Doesn't come easily. So we don't hear anything about that. Literally, we hear nothing about it. And yet, this is the foundation of anything you need to do about climate change. It's also brilliant for everything else we need to do from an economic point of view. Why would you use 30 to 40% more energy to produce the same amount of economic value if you didn't have to? Why would you do that? How can it possibly be in our economic interests, both at the micro level, the firm level, and the macro level, from the perspective of GDP? How can it possibly make sense to use 34% more energy for every unit of GDP than we need to? Well, you all know the answer to that, of course, because our markets are geared in such a way that that's how we incentivize our energy producers. They only make their profits by persuading people to use more energy than we actually need to. And we've never recalibrated our markets to incentivize increased productivity for less input. We also know that if you address energy efficiency, you make a much bigger impact on social justice. It is, to me, scandalous and utterly shameful that this government will go into the next election in a few weeks' time confronting the reality that more people live in fuel poverty in this country today than they did in 1997. This is a Labour government. More people in fuel poverty now than then. How can that possibly be right in a world where Labour still has some sort of residual backward-looking affinity with things like social justice and fairness and equity and so on? Efficiency helps the less well-off in society more than any other group. Because if we do what they're doing in Germany or the Netherlands or many other countries around the world and you start with retrofitting your existing housing stock and you bring all of that existing housing stock up to much higher levels of energy efficiency, the principal beneficiaries of that are the very less well, the less well-off people in society um, who are otherwise paying far more than they need to do. So, boring though it may be, Trust me, 
That's the first bit of the story. There's a sort of weird television program, which some of you may watch in late night moments, called Eight Out of Ten Cats. It's all about strange statistics. So I thought I'd show you this one and see if anyone can find the answer, find the question to that answer. So what is 61 billion out of 787 billion? Anybody know the answer to that? The Obama program. 61 billion is the amount that Obama is spending on, and I'm going to describe this loosely, sustainability-related investments out of a total spend recovery package in the US of around $787 billion. So $61 billion can be designated in one way or another, as long as you don't get too sort of precise about this, as contributions to a more sustainable, more efficient, smarter energy efficiency and distribution system in the US. So out of that 61, for in, 61 billion, for instance, about 15 billion is going on trialing smart grids, new ways of creating energy networks that will deliver and take energy much more efficiently than is currently the case. Huge investments in renewable energy. Strange things going on in America. You probably don't know, for instance, that Texas is already the largest generator of renewable energy in America and vying to become one of the largest producers of renewable electrons of any country in the world. I just love this completely bizarre thing and just wish Bush was still there to enjoy it. You know, it would be such a wonderful to him. So if you tot up all the billions that Obama is doing, it's actually quite impressive because in America they've done something quite sensible to say we're in a fix. We don't just want to bail out the banks and the car companies. We want to get the infrastructure of this country moving towards a better place. Obama sells that in, not on the back of saying, we've got to do something about climate change, because otherwise your teddy's going to sink under the waves. He doesn't do teddies sinking under the waves, OK? What he does is jobs. And what he says is, guess how many new jobs we can generate through this investment? And variously, depending on which figures you're looking at, He's talking about anywhere between 350,000 and 700,000 new jobs out of these investments. He goes on to say, innovation. If we get smart at this and get going and really make these investments now, guess what? We will innovate more technologies for the future than any other country in the world. Brackets, especially China, close brackets. They're very worried about China, quite rightly. Then he goes on to talk again about making America less dependent on all of those countries that the Americans hate. It is so weird that as America has allowed itself to be completely dependent on a bunch of countries that they live in total dread of day in, day out. And yet they never seem to have done anything which actually would increase their energy independence. So he runs down his list of things about jobs, innovation, new patents, increased energy security, blah, blah, blah. And at the bottom, he gets to climate change. And then he says, and guess what, guys? This is also quite a sensible way of doing something about climate change, which we're going to have to do because the world is doing things, and we are a leader in the world, and we need to do it. We don't talk like that in the UK. You don't hear anybody talk about the new wealth that will be created off the back of dealing with climate change. You don't hear anybody really talk about new jobs 
about dealing with chronic, persistent, equity-related problems like fuel poverty. The whole debate is in the wrong place. The whole debate is in the place that says, if we don't do something about this, we're all going to drown. That's not an easy place to manage as a politician. And we've got to get out of that into a much more positive place. So one tiny example of this, because I love using this slide, particularly when I'm talking with oil companies. Um, this is talking about one of the new... I'm moving on to renewables now. One of the new technologies that are beginning to get a lot of traction in the investment communities called CSP, Concentrating Solar Power. Different from the photovoltaics, which is the bit of the solar story that we know most about um, in Europe, or even solar water heaters. CSP is a slightly different technology at the risk of... So this is a CSP plant outside Seville. 22 megawatts, that plant at the top there. Um, this is in the US. I'm not quite sure what that one is doing. But that one there is a 22 megawatt plant. So the sun comes in. These are heliostats that, that turn gradually to pick up maximum intensity from the incoming radiation. They then beam that sunshine onto that tower in the middle, which has got... Uh, water in it, which heats up the water to an incredibly high temperature, which does then a very conventional thing like producing steam, which turns a turbine, which makes electrons. So the start of this bit is pretty smart and new and different. The end bit, we do know a lot about that. Okay. And Seville is building six of these CSP plants, ringing Seville, with a view to making itself a 100% solar city by, I can't remember when. So that's what CSP looks like. Is this going to go back? So there's a group of people called Desert Trek, which is a little group of entrepreneurs and scientists and eccentrics, enthusiasts for a very different world, a world that is basically based on real solar energy, real-time solar energy, rather than stored solar energy. Because our world is 100% dependent on stored solar energy, which we normally refer to as oil, coal, and gas. But that's all oil, coal, and gas is, okay? It's just stored, fossilized solar energy. Didn't emerge out of nowhere, that's what it is. So the transition we're talking about is getting away from our dependence on fossil solar energy to a total use, and I mean total, literally, of real-time solar energy, today's solar energy. And this group called, group called Desert Trek have a way of winding up the oil companies, which is hugely enjoyable, because they've done this little map for desert in the Sahara. And they say, if you wanted to provide enough electricity for Germany, that's the little square on the right there, if you wanted to provide enough CSP-generated electrons for the whole of the EU, that's the square in the middle, and if you wanted to do it for the whole of the world, which actually would be really stupid in the Sahara, but anyway, just imagine that you did, that's the amount of desert that you'd need in the Sahara to produce enough electricity for the whole of the world. Now, you can imagine this gets oil companies very cross indeed. Because they don't like to think that the transition is either technologically viable, as yet, or imminent. And that is why you will still hear chief executives of these oil companies, as Tony Hayward of BP was doing yesterday, you will still hear them trashing prospects for renewables in order to defend their incumbency in that energy market. By incumbency, I mean those companies that currently are able to take huge rental value 
from the contribution they make to that marketplace. This is basically telling you that oil companies are dead. Not tomorrow, probably not the day after, but you know, as soon as we can make them dead, then that's what we want to do. Now, I don't want you to think I'm a complete obsessive about CSP. I'm not. There are lots of problems about CSP. That's a lot of desert, by the way. That's a lot of really quite precious desert ecosystems that will get trashed to build very clunky solar farms of that kind. There are lots of problems about this. You need huge new high-voltage trans high transmission lines, direct current lines from North Africa to the whole of Europe. The cost is eye-watering. You know, just to build these plants across the whole of North Africa is about $60 billion. To build the transmission lines is about $100 billion. To do the super grid for the whole of Europe is, I don't know, $200 billion, whatever it might be. <coughs> so you quickly get up to about half a trillion dollars, which is what people now calculate we would need to do to source all Europe's electricity. I'm not talking about transportation fuels here, though we can come on to that if you like, from this kind of solar power. Half a trillion dollars? Big sum of money? Relatively speaking these days, a pittance. That is, if you think about it, a lot less than the $17 trillion that we have somehow managed to find to bail out the bloody banks. To bail out this corrupt, venal, self-destructive financial system on which wealth in the world has been based for the last 30 or 40 years. We magicked up $17 trillion. Just like that. As politicians said, whatever it takes, for as long as it takes to rescue the financial system. So half a trillion dollars. And then do it in seven, eight, nine, ten countries, okay? To rescue civilization from an otherwise rather grim future seems to me to be a bargain. But we don't do the economics like that, and that's because the incumbents get in the way. Okay, so let me just show you now where we are and why this is such an interesting and such a difficult journey. And to do this very quickly, thinking of it from an economic value point of view, because what we're really talking about here is how can we get people as excited about this and creating new economic value as they are about creating economic value in our fundamentally unsustainable economy today. And I'll show you why they ought to be really, really excited as well as a little nervous. The world economy today, in 2008, causes 768 grams of CO2 to be emitted for every single dollar of economic value created. Relatively simple calculation. You take global GDP, you divide it by total global emissions, and you come up with a figure. Grams per dollar. Grams of CO2 per dollar of value created. So 768 grams of CO2. In the UK, because we're not the most inefficient country in the world, we're actually doing rather better, we emit 347 grams of CO2 per dollar of value, as long as you only look at emissions in the UK. If you look at all the emissions that are caused in China to export all those things that we buy here in the UK, it's rather different, but that's where we are. So, okay, that's our start point. And you can see that this is now the challenge. You know what we're all aiming to do by 2050. As you know, we're sort of heading towards an agreement 
forget Copenhagen for a moment, but we are heading towards an agreement where we know we have to reduce emissions of CO2 by around 80% by 2050. And there is very strong consensus on that, I can assure you from the scientists, very strong consensus. To do the 80% reduction by 2050, we would have to get CO2 intensity, grams of CO2 per <laughs> dollar of value created, down to 36 grams. 768 to 36. Now, how do you respond to that? If you're a glass half empty person, you look at that and you go, ah, we're finished. It's all over. How can we possibly do that? How can we get the whole of our economy from this inherently unsustainable CO2 intensity level to one which would give us a prospect of a sustainable route into a better world. And if you're glass half empty, you look at that and you think, that's it, we're finished. If you're a glass half full person, you look at that and think, that represents trillions and trillions of dollars of economic value. Guess why? Because we're going to have to innovate like we've never innovated before. We're going to have to be smarter than we've ever been before. We're going to have to find routes to these solutions that we've never even dreamt of as yet. Our innovation pipeline is going to have to get enormous. We're going to have to get huge investments brought to bear on this transition as fast as we possibly can. I wasn't in Copenhagen, but some colleagues of mine who were over there told me that one of the saddest things that they witnessed when they were over there, and there were a lot of sad things, was that at the end of that first week, just before the politicians turned up to make the mess of it that they then did, there was a side meeting involving six of the most successful entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. All those people who created Amazon and Google and Yahoo and, you know, all that stuff. And they'd come over, a bit like a, a kind of a last minute bunch of missionaries to show us the truth as it really is, the revealed truth from Silicon Valley. They came over to explain why a very large significant share of Silicon Valley innovation and money is moving now into renewable energy. And apparently they sat there and they gave this amazingly upbeat talk about everything that was going on and how exciting this was and solar this and algae that and hydrogen the other and you know, what they're like when they get going on this stuff, all with these wonderfully impassioned um, American uh, accents. And everybody sort of thought, well, that, maybe that really is the future. Maybe that really is it. This is certainly the only meeting in the whole of the Copenhagen process where anybody has talked like that. And guess how many people were in that room? 22. 22. Now, that tells me something quite interesting, really. Because about all the people there who were already getting pretty sad about Copenhagen, only 22 could summon up the enthusiasm to go and listen to a bunch of egotistical, crazy, Silicon Valley warrior entrepreneurs tell them that it was going to be okay, because actually we can innovate our way out of this mess. I don't know if we can or not, but I sure as hell am pleased that there are one or two people trying to do it. Let me just finish this off, actually, because it isn't quite as easy as 36 grams. <laughs> if we want to get everybody on the planet sharing in the wealth equally, which means we have to bring up 
many, many poor people today to a higher standard of living. We have to go 14 grams of CO2. This is getting quite scary. And if we then want to carry on growing in the West in order to keep our material standard of living rising through at roughly 1%, 2% per annum through to 2050, then we have to go to 6 grams of CO2 per dollar of value created. 768 to 6. Okay, that's a tough call. That's so tough, you really do begin to wonder whether we're capable of it. But nonetheless, 130-fold decarbonisation journey seems to me to be a reasonable challenge. So let me end by reminding you why this is all so difficult. And the reason why it's all so difficult is this is what we consider progress to be in the world today. Okay, this is our model of progress. I know you'd like to track it back probably to lots of eminent philosophers who've written wonderful lifetimes work about what it is that humanity is all about and so on and so forth. Actually, this is what humanity is all about. I'm sorry to cut to the raw here, but that's what we mean by progress. We mean more and more of us demanding more and more of the planet, that's the plug bit, the human demand, on a limited resource base. Fantastic model of progress, isn't it? Really brilliant. Why not have more and more people demanding more and more of an asset base which cannot get any bigger? Yet that's what all our politicians today will tell you is the only route to a better world. They'll still tell you that. They haven't really internalized the lessons of climate change at all. They'll still tell you that's what progress means. And now they'll tell you, well, that's what progress means because we've got to do something about poverty. And we can't do something about poverty unless we continue to grow demand for stuff. It's really sad when you hear politicians talking about China and they say, well, China owes it to the world now to get far more of its citizens consuming in the same way that we consume in the West. Because that way they'll stop saving, which is what they do now, and get spending. And if they get spending, the wheels of the global economy will spin faster and hey presto, we'll all come out the other end. Dead. Sorry, you see, I couldn't help it. I've just gone straight back into apocalyptic talk. I mean, it's just natural. You see the problem? I'm trying to do the upside bit. What happens? I just default automatically to offering you death. I'm doing this a bit deliberately, but I'm sort of aware that in my own confused brain, a little bit of me is a bit more comfortable talking about apocalypse than talking about crazy Californian capitalists rescuing humankind from its fate. There's a bit of me that still kind of balks at that combination, which I know I've got to do something about. So last two slides, just to remind you that this is tricky. This is tricky because we're very bad at being excited about innovation, entrepreneurialism, and technology breakthroughs. The green movement is really not good at that. We find it incredibly hard. And we're very bad in many rich world countries in addressing equity. This is a very simple, wonderful piece of work. If I had to recommend one book for those of you interested in the socioeconomic aspects of sustainability, get hold of this amazing book called The Spirit Level by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. Incredible book, came out last year. Such an elegant, powerful piece of research tracking the incidence of these pathologies, if you like, these dysfunctionalities in society over there on the left. 
So things like homicides, numbers of people in prison, obesity, mental illness, drug addiction, blah, 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 all the things that actually cause such grief to individuals and to society as a whole. And they tracked each of those, whatever it is, 10 patterns of, of dysfunctional behavior against the equity gaps in different countries, the so-called Gini coefficient, the gap between the richest and the poorest. And what you can see, and it is startlingly clear, is that the more unequal your country is, the higher the incidence of these pathological behaviors, of these patterns of broken society damage. So the US is almost off the chart up there. Um, that's where it sits, Portugal, and then to our, in my opinion, eternal shame, the UK comes in third for OECD countries. This doesn't include China and India. They haven't been able to do the rapidly emerging economies yet. And down here you've got Japan, a country which is regularly assaulted by the economist as a failed economy because it's only grown by about 0.5% per annum over the last 12 years, and that is failure, obviously, but a country in which, actually, if you look at it from the perspective of all of those things that bind society together, build social capital, doing rather well, then the usual suspects, Sweden, Norway, Finland, <laughs> We don't really count those. Scandinavians somehow don't really count. You know, they're Scandinavians. They're just, they're just too different from us. And then you work your way through the system. And then amazingly, and I won't go into any more detail about this, they then did exactly the same piece of work, looking at that equity coefficient for every one of the different states in America. So they did precisely the same analysis about equity gaps in all the different states. And you will find exactly the same correlation between inequity and broken society phenomena of that kind. The thrust of this book is so interesting because it basically says, even if you're a relatively well-off middle-class person who has a bit of a grudge about people who say that tax is quite a good thing, you might just cotton on to the fact that the more prepared you are to help build an equitable and fair country, the less you have to pay in taxes, in fact, to deal with all of those problems. And I could run you through the net cost of that. Mental Health, Department of Health, published its report two years ago, 67 billion pounds a year as the direct and indirect economic consequences of us being one of the most mentally sick countries in the world. It's not a very nice thing to think about, is it, for the UK, but we are. There you are, 76 billion pounds a year. My final slide, which I hope sums it up. So here's this geezer. Yabba, yabba, yabba. Something like me, okay. Saying, look, what do you want in life, okay? Do you want all of these things? They all sound quite nice with you, don't they? Healthy children. It's better than teddies disappearing under the waves. Healthy children. Clean water, renewables, livable cities, green jobs. Fantastic stuff, we want all of that. Surely we want all of that. You can see that it doesn't say anything about climate change up there. And then you've got the editor of the Daily Express <laughs> at the back there saying, yeah, 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 but look, it could still be a hoax. And we could have all of those things. And if it's a hoax, what happens then? Now, humorously, I hope this rather puts the finger on an important psychological reality we have to get 
hold of. If we want to start making a difference in terms of advocacy about climate change, we have to get fantastically good at pitching all of the collateral benefits that come from a campaign to decarbonize our societies. We have to get really good at understanding job generators, economic multipliers, productivity enhancers, efficiency improvements. I know this stuff all sounds dire. And for the environment movement that was never exactly economically literate, it's all a bit threatening. But if we don't start to do that stuff passionately, we're going to find increasingly that the contrarians, those who honestly can't cope with the physical reality that there are limits to the reach of humankind on this planet, will continue to win the day. And that's a very, very tough message to have to internalize. So you can see I'm a bit muddled. I've taken you through a lot of stuff, come out in what I hope is an upbeat place, but it's quite a challenge, this, to us as much as to anybody else. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Sean, for a very inspiring and very passionate uh, talk, uh, I thought. This uh, leaves us plenty of time for a question and answer session, and I mean questions. You know, I strongly prefer an actual question rather than a statement where your voice goes sort of slightly up towards the end of uh, the sentence. Um, we'll take uh, three or four uh, questions, and then um, Jonathan will answer them in turn. There are micros uh, around. Please speak in, into them. Uh, as well. Yes, we'll take the lady over there first. Thank you. My name is Tanya Dimitrova. And my question is, um, what is going on with the Copenhagen Accord, according to you? You said you're not quite sure what's going on in the world. I'm not quite sure either. <laughs> but they were supposed to come up with something by the end of January. That was four days ago. Thank you. Hi, Chris Dunn, Sustainability Consultant, Atkins. Um, my question is, if we're going to have this green industrial revolution, we need a lot of training. And do you see that happening in the UK, that green education? There was a question. Do we have a mic here, please? Hello, my question is somewhat similar, but it's taking that to a developing country perspective. How do you look at technology transfer being more than just transferring computers or technology? How do you take the training so it builds the capacity of developing countries? Okay, I'll take one more question for this round. Please. Hi, Sue Rove, Harriet Watt University. By the way, there's a new um, pamphlet, um, paper out on million jobs, climate jobs, from the um, campaign against climate change. But my question is, all of this seems to me, and we've been talking about this for years, like no-brainers. And this is something David King and you haven't managed to achieve. Why doesn't the British government get it? <laughs> Want to give that a try? <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, God, I thought I'd get away without mentioning nine years in the trenches, but no. Um, okay, very quickly on the Copenhagen Accord. There is a process 
they signed this, the six of the countries signed this thing called the Accord, and it has laid down a process. So those countries that have voluntarily already declared targets have now re-presented them to the Secretariat, and that's already been published. Nothing new at all. So no, no, nothing new has emerged from any country uh, anywhere in the world. They now head towards a conference in Bonn in June, and then they head towards Mexico um, at the end of November. And are we going to get a deal by the end of the year in Mexico? Um, I don't think so. I don't think we are. I mean, every, actually, I shouldn't really say that because um, I don't really know. Everything depends on whether Obama is smart enough to get a bill through the Senate. If he gets a bill through the Senate, then, frankly, like dominoes, a lot of things begin to fall in place. But getting a bill through the Senate is just as hard on climate change as it's been on health, and you can see what a battle that's been. And, of course, they haven't really helped themselves by losing the uh, Massachusetts uh, seat, uh, Robert Kennedy's seat, to uh, a Republican, which means that the balance of power has shifted towards the Republicans. So, very tough. It may happen. Obama is, because he's just launched this, you know, the State of the Union address was all about jobs. It was, it's a brilliant, I mean, his speech in Copenhagen was crap. I mean, it was absolute rubbish. It was just dreadful. His speech, State of the Union speech about jobs and how this all couples up was back to his eloquent best. So he's now trogging around the country doing this jobs for a better future for Americans. And a big chunk of his stump speech now is about jobs from low carbon futures. So, you know, if that happens, we might get a deal. Um, on the training bit, um, you'll know very well that, that we haven't made a lot of progress on this in the UK. The, the UK government set up something called the, the Academy for Sustainable Communities uh, eight years ago, which theoretically was meant to inject expertise and money into the business of creating the skill base for a low-carbon economy. Uh, very little progress made, to be absolutely honest. And we've missed out on this amazing opportunity that you can see in Germany, where Germany decided some time ago that the best way of doing this was via jobs and retrofitting existing housing. Angela Merkel talks all the time about the hundreds of thousands of jobs that have been created. And many of those jobs are in the local areas where they do the retrofit schemes. And I don't know, I can't remember what the figure is, but it's a huge number of people who've acquired new skills in appliance fitting, in basics, sort of... You know, doing the whole uh, low energy, energy efficiency kind of thing. Um, we're miles behind the scene here. It was in November that the government rolled out its first ever pilot schemes to come up with some creative new ways of financing retrofit in our existing housing stock. I mean, November 2009. So that brings me on to your question. I'll come back to technology transfer in a moment. That brings you on to the question about why. Um, it's sort of to do with Steve Chu, and, it, and it's to do with something about this weird government. Um, I feel it's quite painfully still. I've just written a little piece about the wasted decade, and through the lens of the failed leadership promise that we had, really, on many, many counts. But on this one in particular, I've been looking back at some of the speeches that Tony Blair was giving in uh, 1997, you know, from the point of election onwards, and boy, they are impressive. I mean, they're amazing stuff. And he was an absolutely indefatigable champion on the international stage for climate change. And I can remember there was a sort of moment where you thought, that's brilliant. Now he's going to translate it all 
into action here in the UK. He's going to do the stuff about a green industrial revolution. He's going to do the stuff about jobs and skills, and et cetera, et cetera. And then 9-11, Twin Towers. Let's have an illegal war, because that would be so much better for my legacy. Let's do all of these crazy things. Let's ramp up the kind of attack on everything that people hold dear in terms of global politics. And from that point on, you can honestly track Tony Blair's own leadership achievements on a declining trajectory. From a climate change, this is a very narrow point of view, okay, but I've tried to work out why, given unparalleled leadership on the international stage, why we failed so badly. And to be fair, it wasn't until Gordon Brown appointed Ed Miliband in the new Department of Energy and Climate Change that we began to get any reason at all. And I don't want to bang on about this because it's a complicated story, but I mentioned to you before the power of incumbency. And are you the same, Sue I who I've known of old? Okay, just checking. Um, you will know more about this than me because you've suffered. Sorry, Sue is a pioneer of solar, solar power for those who don't uh, know her work, wonderful work. Um, because you've suffered firsthand from the, the part that these people play in our society. And when I talk about incumbency in government processes, we have a terrible nexus at the heart of government here on energy made up of the department itself prior to the creation of DEC. So that was the Department of Business, Industry and Skills, or the old DTI, which had no interest in sustainable energy and certainly no interest in efficiency, combining forces with the big six energy suppliers, combining forces with the regulator, Ofgem. And if you look at that from the perspective of incumbent control over the market, over the system, there was no beating it, basically. And it wasn't until Ed Miliband arrived and said, this stinks, this is outrageous. We, we say we're the best on renewables, yet we're third from the bottom of the EU league table with only Malta and Luxembourg below us. And you've got the nerve as civil servants to come and tell me we're doing really well. So it needed someone to get in there and say this one is awful. So this is a sad story, to be honest. Technology transfer. This is where we can get really excited, in my opinion. Um, I was talking to one of the assessors for something called the Ashton Awards for Renewable Energy. And uh, it's a brilliant award scheme for renewables and, and um, local microgeneration efficiency and so on. Just come back from India visited this 